Welcome to this week's pre-Thanksgiving special episode of the Plugged In Podcast. This is your co-host, Neil Chatterjee, joined once again by Washington Examiner energy reporter, Brianne Deppish. How's it going, Brianne? Neil, it is great. I'm not going to lie to you. I was a little bit nervous going into this week's Thanksgiving holiday episode. I was nervous that we might not have, you know, enough topics to talk about. As it turns out, we have quite the opposite situation on our hands. We are fresh off the heels of the November 8th midterms, new Congress, GOP will control the House, and Democrats will continue to control the Senate. We have a new winter reliability forecast that has left us all, terrible pun intended, shaking in our boots. And it is also the one-year anniversary of Biden's first tranche of the SPR sales. Add to that the COP27 summit, leaders clinched an 11th hour deal on loss and damage, but not much else. And then new COVID shutdowns in China and uncertainty on the G7 oil price gap. So we are here to kind of run down all of these things. Ready to break this down when you are. It's pretty exciting. And again, there's a lot happening. I love it when our two professional paths cross beyond this podcast. And so I was particularly excited to see you do some great reporting on this winter reliability assessment. That's obviously something that was very core to my work during my time at FERC. And it's an area of policy that I still track very closely today. Loved to see you digging into it. Why don't you walk our listeners through the reporting you did? While I know way less than Neil about this, I was not a former FERC chairman. I also learned a lot about this. And it's especially close to my heart because my family actually lives in Texas, you know, and kind of firsthand saw the damage about two years ago. So NERC's winter reliability assessment, they do this every winter, basically said that a large portion of the U.S. and Canada are facing insufficient energy supplies during peak winter conditions this year. That's due to just basically inadequate generator weatherization, risks of low fuel supply, and a lot of limitations to natural gas infrastructure, especially in the Northeast. As we know, we kind of touched on that in previous weeks. And I think the most at risk are the Northeast due to this, you know, continued home heating oil, lack of natural gas situation, as well as the Midwest, really high concerns there, and Texas ERCOT grid once again. One thing that was really interesting to me was that there weren't a lot of reliability concerns on the West Coast, which, you know, was obviously not the case this summer. And the Midwest concerns seem to be really, really high. Could you maybe walk us through why in particular that area is at risk? The Western grids tend to be put under greater pressure in high heat situations. And so therefore, heading into the winter where you have milder winters out there, there's less pressure, less demand for air conditioning and the like. You have you know fewer wildfire situations. And so that's the issue with the Western grid. The Midwest really interesting. And it's you know driven a lot by some institutional factors that have come into play over the years that have just put us in a really fragile situation. Situation. What's basically been happening is what we're seeing. So the, the market in the Midwest is called MISO. It's a mid-continent independent system operator. And the simple way to kind of highlight what's happening there is there is not enough generation. 
period, point blank. States have made it clear that they are primarily responsible for resource adequacy in the region. Yet for years, merchant generators have been sounding the alarm that they could not continue to lose money year over year and that market revenues were insufficient. And what I think has happened is some states and a number of load serving entities thought they could continue to buy capacity from the MISO auction at near zero prices. And they basically came to the conclusion that, hey, why pay to build or contract for generation when it's available at a fraction of the cost in the MISO auction? And the end result is that badly needed generation has retired. And now the region is going to be at an elevated risk of load loss for the foreseeable future. And so this isn't something that kind of happened overnight, something that's been in the works for some time, but it's not something that's going to go away and that you can wave a magic wand and fix in the next year or two. This is going to be a challenge for the foreseeable future. And with gas prices where they are, it's going to be expensive to boot. Yeah, absolutely. And is this the first year that this is the first year that I've covered the reliability assessment? Is this the first year that we're really seeing all of those factors come to play in the Midwest? Or has this kind of been long time coming and they've just put it off, put it off sort of sort of like Texas? Yeah, you know, it's one of those things where it's somewhat situational, but it's somewhat a factor of the pace and progress of the energy transition. Look, reliability, I've said on this podcast before and in our conversations, I think that during my time at FERC, the reliability of the grid was my foremost obligation and responsibility. So it's something that we've always taken seriously. What's new about it is the energy transition is putting pressure on grid. And that's exciting. We're seeing the benefits of variable resources like renewables coming online. But we've got this complex dynamic where it's complex from a pricing standpoint, from a building standpoint, from a resource adequacy standpoint. You layer on the fact that grids are increasingly being tested by extreme weather events that are being driven by climate change. But in order to combat climate change and reduce emissions, you've got to accelerate the deployment of weather-dependent resources. It's a hugely complex perfect storm of events that has just made these issues more pronounced. So I didn't really totally answer your question. The answer is this is not a new problem, but it's perhaps an enhanced one because of the complexities of the energy transition. And I think as we all well know, or we saw in Texas, at least, it just takes one energy emergency to take down the grid or to really, really put a large swath of the U.S. in this really dangerous condition. So pretty sobering assessment. No doubt. Well, scary enough on the domestic front, I know you've been doing a lot in the international sphere. You want to touch on uh, some of the reporting you've done coming out of COP? Sort of a a strange two weeks. A lot of frustration on the negotiations process and not a lot of progress being made up until the very last night. I think it was about like 4.15 in the morning, you know, overnight, total 11th hour situation that leaders finally came together and agreed on this sort of loss and damage fund, which is basically the agreement for wealthier nations to help fund poorer nations that have suffered the effect of climate change. We've seen a lot of holdout from the US and the European Union on this specifically, just because they fear that they are going to be legally on the hook, you know, to pay out millions or billions of dollars in compensation to these countries. So the fact that they reached a deal is significant. Will it come to fruition, you know, within the next couple of years? Probably not. I don't even think they're going to start talking about what's in it until the next UN summit. So everyone was excited about that. There were 
tears, there was hugging, you know, it was more relief at the end of just two weeks of stonewalling. But then I think more broadly, we saw a lot of frustrations at play after they released the final framework Sunday afternoon. Basically, the COP26 president later told Reuters that they had to fight relentlessly to even hold the line for some of the agreements set in Glasgow. There was no clear commitment to phase out all fossil fuels, and it just really seemed to lack a spirit of collaboration that I think a lot of people were hoping for, due in large part to the war in Ukraine, which has totally upended the energy landscape as we know it. So is this sort of developing countries who've been calling for this for three decades now saying, hey, look, we didn't do anything to contribute to climate change, yet we're facing the world's worst impact. And so the rest of you wealthy countries have to pay reparations. And there was such a fixation there that some of the emissions language kind of got overlooked. And so when you look at that combination, that it looks like loss and damage was essentially punted and the emissions language sort of created like nothing about phasing out fossil fuels and opening for quote unquote low emissions fuels and favorable language on natural gas and nuclear. Was this cop a failure in some ways? I think a lot of people are coming out of it seeing it that way. There were disappointment from a number of climate groups, just even a number of governments who had really hoped for more. I, I truly think that, you know, the damage caused by Russia's war in Ukraine cannot be overstated here. Europe is in an incredibly precarious position, really upended the EU's whole energy transition to renewables, their efforts to transition to more clean energy. I think in the long term, you know, we have the International Energy Agency forecast that says that ultimately it has accelerated it in the long term. That does not mean that in the short term, they are not going to be super reliant on fossil fuels, super reliant on gas, LNG, oil shipments, just to make up for this Russian shortfall. And right now they are in a good spot. They're actually poised to exit the winter with about 30% natural gas storage, which is way better than expected. That's due to just the really mild winter weather they've had so far, but not nearly as much progress as lots of participants, including the U.S., really had hoped for there. I got to tell you, on even on this loss and damage stuff, so it's voluntary is my understanding, right? Because if it were not, I don't know politically how sustainable that would be in the U.S. We can have a question on the morality of it. The politics of it are really, really tricky. The idea that American taxpayer dollars would go and pay for other countries' climate suffering. Again, I may be sympathetic from a moral perspective, from a political one, that's dicey. We already have a hard enough time, you know, using taxpayer dollars for domestic spending, right? So the idea of, yeah, funneling out huge amounts of it to other countries is not going to be a popular one. That being said, I imagine that in the minds of, you know, many voters, this isn't really going to come to bear for years, right? I think as soon as it moves from abstraction to reality, that's when it's going to bring home some political costs (laughs) for Democrats and, you know, for the the politicians policyholders here. But I don't think there was really, like I said, in the near term, will there be movement on this? Probably not. Will it be an issue that maybe Republicans try to seize on as a talking point? Maybe, yeah. But I don't actually think the bulk of it will begin happening for the next two, three years, at least. At least not what I've seen in my reporting. Maybe that's a good pivot to bring it back home a little bit, talking about politics and Republicans and Democrats and energy. Midterm elections. One of the things that I thought was really interesting, we on this podcast plugged in being an energy focused podcast. I actually thought that energy climate issues would be far more pronounced in this campaign, particularly in the aftermath of the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act. Almost zero. I think I saw 
something around maybe 15% of ads in September and 18% in October even mentioned climate change or energy either way for or against wasn't really a big issue in this campaign, which is kind of interesting. Maybe we're at a point where some of the politics around climate and energy policy are lessening, which if you are optimistic like me could portend in a future of being able to negotiate in a bipartisan way on these things. Or it could be there were just so many other issues from Roe to inflation to democracy that kind of overwhelmed the electorate that just there was no bandwidth left to get around to climate and energy policy. Doesn't look like it played a huge role in the midterm result, but the midterm result is definitely going to have an impact on climate and energy policy. So it looks like we're headed for divided government. The Senate will be 50-50 or 51-49 Democrat, depending on the outcome of the runoff election in Georgia between the incumbent Senator Warnock and the challenger Herschel Walker. Neither one of them reached 50%, pushing it to a runoff. But Democrats held the Senate in a shocker to many, including myself, quite frankly. I'd done a pre-election episode with my colleague, former Senator Norm Coleman, and he was pretty convinced that Republicans would take the Senate. It didn't materialize. Republicans lost the Senate seat in Pennsylvania, where Dr. Oz fell to now incoming Senator John Fetterman. I've got to interject. That was probably the big one that we in the energy reporting world were paying attention to because that's where energy did receive a little bit more of the focus. Obviously, other issues at stake, but much more so than in a lot of other campaigns, right? You know, there was the whole big fracking debacle. That was that whole issue was on center stage during their debate. It shows you candidate quality matters and Fetterman was a known quantity being the lieutenant governor of the state. And I think the arguments that Oz wasn't from Pennsylvania really stuck. He was a good candidate. I thought he was smart, sound, sensible and reasonable, didn't resonate. And, and so now you have a Democratic Senate majority, but then the House went the other way. You've got most likely, although certainly not a done deal in a lot. A lot of variables that have to come into play. Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, that to come in in January with a very narrow majority in the House, probably one that mirrors the majority that Pelosi had the past couple of years. And we're going to go into 2023 with a with an evenly divided House and an evenly divided Senate. And as I look to what it might mean for energy and climate policy, my take is with the country this divided, nobody wants to swing for the fences. I don't think voters want to see partisan politics from either party, Republicans or Democrats. And so I'm actually thinking this might empower the moderates, empower the substantive folks to actually get something boring and meaningful done the next couple of years. You've got a bunch of Democratic senators who are now in the majority in the Senate in red states who are up for re-election in 24. Joe Manchin in West Virginia, John Tester in Montana, Sherrod Brown in Ohio, just to name a few, Tim Kaine in Virginia. But then you've got a bunch of House Republicans in Biden districts who are going to want to hold their seats in a presidential election year. And I think it's good. there's going to be pressure on both those groups to demonstrate 
to their constituents that they can deliver. And whether it's permitting reform or a border carbon adjustment, mm-hmm. or maybe it's just cleaning up the tax code and, and you know Republicans wanting to make some cleanup to the tax codes and jobs act and Democrats wanting to clean up the IRA. I'm hopeful that maybe we will actually see some bipartisan cooperation on small ball energy issues. Nothing that's going to be a big headline grabber. So sorry, Brianne, probably not a great <laughs> next couple of years for congressional reporters writing about exciting stories coming out of Congress. But there might actually be some productive things that get done that are just less exciting. I actually think that's a really good point. You know, to your point about being really divided and the partisan divisions being on display, that that is true. But then I also agree with the note of optimism you struck at the end, which is that in a way, this also just, it kind of reflects the views more accurately of the American electorate. As we've seen, we have a pretty hyper-polarized government. I'm kind of going back to my political science days in college, but that sort of over-represents the views of the average voter, which is by and large on average, more moderate. And so I actually think this is this might be an effective way to serve as sort of a checks and balances and make sure, like you said, they're striking compromise in the right places. The Biden administration, the early days of Biden, they were saying it's kind of nice to have a boring administration by comparison. You know, it offered people some relief. And so maybe we'll see a little bit more of the same with this potentially more moderate Republican majority in the House and with this 50-50 or 51-49 split in the Senate. We're heading into Thanksgiving. Everyone's going to be tryptophan out. We don't want to close on talking about a boring Congress and comes to energy policy. So let's finish up with something exciting. You've been doing some great reporting, digging around DOE on the SPRO and the anniversary of Biden's announcement on the release. Bring us home strong. Talk to our listeners about what you've been reporting on in this area and, and break some news for our folks. I'm not sure I'm in a position to to break the news on this particular podcast, but I will say an interesting kind of point here. It's been one year, like I said, since Biden ordered the first tranche of strategic petroleum reserve sales. He ordered 50 million barrels released one year ago as of Wednesday, which, as we know, was later followed by the historic 180 million barrel sale. The White House kind of quietly asked Congress, they sent a letter to Pelosi asking for $500 million worth of funding to modernize the SPR, which is now obviously drained to its lowest point in 40 years. For those of you who don't know, the SPR basically consists of four underground salt caverns. They're in the Gulf Coast of Texas and Louisiana. There are these massive, massive caverns that are really susceptible to degradation or deformity with every Every single drawdown. And if you put that in the context of the 180 million barrel drawdown, there is a lot of risk there. So the fact that they asked for this modernization fund quietly at the last minute in the final weeks when they had both a Democratic led House and Senate was interesting to me. So I put out some feelers and it turns out that they were still short on details, but I was told by administration officials with kind of firsthand knowledge of the funds that they will be going towards this project that's called the Lifeline Extension 2, which
which has been in the works for a little bit, but also to help the infrastructure of the caverns, which they actually, I don't think a lot of people know this, but they can actually collapse (laughs) if oil is released or brought up too quickly. So there's a lot of maintenance that's required. I think it's interesting because Congress actually already allocates funds every single year towards modernization of this. And we don't really know the conditions of the caverns as they stand right now. We don't know whether the drawdowns have rendered any of the caverns just completely unusable, whether they've collapsed and they have to find new facilities. I think there's just an interesting lack of information there. Republicans have sent letters to the White House asking for more information, as have some other folks who previously oversaw the SPR. So I'm really, really looking forward to finding out more about this and kind of sort of the risks that these drawdowns have had. Well, I look forward to following your continued great work and reporting on this. I hope you and your family and all of our listeners and their families have a wonderful Thanksgiving. And we'll be back next week with a post-Thanksgiving plugged-in interview and should have some great episodes between now and the end of the year. So happy Thanksgiving, everyone. And thank you, Brianne, for another great episode of the Plugged In Podcast. Thank you, Neil. Happy Thanksgiving. Thanks so much again for listening to Season 3 of the Plugged In Podcast. New episodes will be available on Tuesdays at noon Eastern Time. You can keep up with all things energy by following the Washington Examiner on all of our social media channels and by subscribing to the Daily on Energy newsletter, written by me, Brianne Depish, and my co-author, Jeremy Beeman. 